0: valued, okay? So, I can't... You are valued, Shirley. You are valued, Bobby. You are valued, Carol, okay? All right, choir. Bless you. You are valued. Okay. You are valued, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah, today, Jesus, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your mind, and we would also say strength. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this whole concept of loving others as self, if, if we value self created in the image of God, then we value others. So uh, church, church, you are valued. Be reminded of that today and remind others around you that they are people who are worthy of God's love. We might not feel like it, but we are worthy of his love. Let's read together. Follow along as I read Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, after his baptism, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He had been fasting, the devil came to him and tempted him in the three basic ways that we are all tempted. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And now we come to the end of his ministry in today's text. He has entered the city of Jerusalem where he is in the temple courts and he is tempted yet again. There are three distinct temptations, but this time it is by the religious leaders. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians question him about paying taxes to Caesar, and they try to trap him. Then the Sadducees try to trap him in a debate about the resurrection, marriage at the resurrection. And now a Pharisee, who is an expert in the law, asks Jesus to name the greatest commandment in the law. Temptation by the adversary at the beginning of his ministry, and now temptations by his adversaries at the end of his ministry. And we know that Jesus did not yield then, and he would not yield this time either, even if it meant the cross. After Jesus silenced the Sadducees, as you heard me read earlier, the Pharisees then got together and mustered their forces against him. You might need to know the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a sect of Jewish leaders who differed from the Pharisees. For example, the Sadducees only followed the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament as we know it, the Hebrew Bible. Some call them the books of Moses or the Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning five, the first five books. The Sadducees only followed those books, nothing else in the Hebrew Bible. And unlike the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So after he had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees come back to him And they chose this time one of their sharpest legal minds, a scribe, perhaps a senior partner in the local legal firm, if you will, to go up against Jesus. If their previous attempts to trap him weren't successful, surely they would succeed this time. Jesus is only a day or two away from being arrested and killed, and the ministry concludes with these three tests that come in the form of questions. Three temptations, three tests, bookends of Jesus' ministry. The scribe asked Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? In verse 36. And to you and me, this might be a benign question, almost like asking choir one of us, which is your favorite beatitude? By the way, choir, I can't turn around too much to face you today because my headset's not working. So just bear with me but it's sort of like asking us, which of yours is the favorite beatitude? But it was a trick question. We need to know a little bit more about the commandments that the scribe was speaking about. The scribe was not asking Jesus to choose the most important of the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Rather, he was asking Jesus which commandments stood first with him. The scribes held that there were 248 affirmative commands. These are the thou shalts, the things you should do, or you're supposed to do, actually. This was equal to the number of the members in the human body. And they held that there were 365 negative commands, the thou shalt nots. The total of those two together combines to 613 commands... And 613 happens to be the number of Hebrew characters or letters in the Hebrew alphabet that were in the Ten Commandments. So they had devised this whole legalistic way of understanding God's commandments. And they believed that all 613 of these were equal. So the scribe asked Jesus the question in such a way that Jesus could not give a correct answer. If someone asked me, Bob, what's your favorite gospel? I might be able to answer that. But if someone tried to pin me down and said, which of the gospels is the most important? Well, that would be a different question because they're all important. Jesus responds and Summarizes the commands in two ways, two different understandings, and he says that they are one. No matter what Jesus said to them, it would be wrong. They would have evidence then to try him and convict him of blasphemy. They would catch him, hook, line, and sinker. They would seek to defeat him, game, set, and match. You would think that by this time in Jesus' ministry, they would know not to go after him. But Jesus, shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove, cuts through the legalism and the splitting of hairs and gets to the heart of the problem. So what did he do? Jesus responded to Satan in the wilderness early in his ministry with the word of God. And he did the same thing at the end of his ministry as well. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, like, like it, not like of a, another kind, but like in the same kind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments, said Jesus. And he threw it right back at him. Love the Lord your God comes from Deuteronomy six five, part of the Shema. Every Jewish service opens with this verse. Every Jewish child would have committed it to memory. To this day, they still do. It is the center of the morning and evening prayers. And Jewish people then would recite it as they went to bed in the evening. And Love Your Neighbor as Yourself comes from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus is saying that when we love God, people become lovable. The biblical teaching about humankind is that we are made in the image of God. We talked about this last week, Genesis 1, and 27. It is for this reason that humankind is lovable, because we are all created in the image of a loving God. Here, Jesus implies that the love of man is firmly grounded in the love of God. One scholar says this passage recapitulates the entire teaching ministry of Jesus. And the linchpin of Jesus' argument back to the scribes is in one small word that we find in verse 40. He says, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. The Greek word translated hang can also be translated as depend, stem from, or as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, They are pegs, everything hangs on them. The Greek word is cremaniumai, means to hang up or to be dispended, suspended. Out in the narthex, there are some little hooks where our children, and you all as well, can hang your coats if you want to. In my study here at the church, I have my grandfather's coat rack, and it's where I hang my liturgical robe and my Sunday jacket. You may have a coat rack or some things fastened to the wall in your house and you hang important things on them. At home in my garage I have pegboard and little brackets and so forth on the pegboard and there I have my rake and my shovel and my weed whacker and my hedge trimmers and all kinds of other fun stuff that I like to use when I'm out working in the yard. You can think of things in your home that you hang stuff on. This is what Jesus says. And he says to them, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. They can't argue that. They could not argue that. The law and the prophets was their entire Bible. We have the Old Testament, we have the Torah, we have the prophets, and we have the Gospels and the letters all the way through the end of Revelation. And we would say the same thing that all of Our Bible, the entire canon of the Christian Bible, hangs on these two commands. Love God, love neighbor. It brings together all of Jesus' ministry. Next time you look at a door, when you're going out of church or when you're going into your house or opening a cupboard in your kitchen, look at the hinges and think about how important the hinges are to those doors. If the hinges are not working properly or if there's one missing, the door will not work properly. We would say that the door is sort of like the Bible. The, as the door is, uh, needs those two or three hinges to function, so the Bible hinges on these two commandments. The purpose of a door is to open and close, to allow things to come in and go out, In order for the door to fulfill its purpose, it needs the hinges. In the same way, these two commands are the hinges that allow Scripture to fulfill its purpose as God's word for us. And when Jesus told him, told the the scribe, that everything hinged on these two commands, there was not a thing that they could say in response. So what does, God, what does loving God look like for us today? If we think about it all hinging on these two. If you're taking notes, I, I have a few things that will help as we go through this week. Number one is that I desire to give God all of my affections, my heart and soul. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say sometimes, some of it. We are to love God wholeheartedly. In Jesus' time, the heart was the seat of emotions. He's saying that the greatest thing we can do is love God with all our heart. The Greek word here for love God and love neighbor is agape love, unconditional, complete, unwavering love. So to love God with all one's heart means a total attachment, a total commitment to God. This is really worship, isn't it? It's worship. When we give God all we are and all we have, it's worship. What do you give God who has everything? What do you give his, a God who's given it all? You give God, we give God our love. We say, I love you, God. And we say it often. And we say it through our worship. And we express our thanksgiving and praise to God. We give our whole selves to God as an act of worship. You might remember the praise and worship song by Jeremy Camp called You're Worthy of Praise. The lyrics go, I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise. You alone I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. I will worship with all of my heart. I will worship. I will praise you with all my strength. I will seek you all my days. I will follow you all. I will follow all of your ways. God wants all of us, all of our affections, not a part, but the whole. Another way that we love God is to give God all of our attention. So our affections, our feelings, our emotions, but also our attention. Recognize our distractions choose to stop thinking about some things and refocus our thoughts to godly things. This involves having a daily time with God. This involves a constant prayer throughout the day, that prayer is a lifestyle of our worship. We give God all of our attention. I don't know about you, but this is a really hard one for me. At home, when I'm having my quiet time in the morning in my prayer chair, I'll think about something and then often I'll get up and want to do it or oh there's an email I needed to check. Oh, let me see how so and so's uh, doing. So I'm just going to check Facebook really quick and then it's all gone from there. I don't know about you, but it's distracting to me. So I have decided uh, to stop using my Bible app on my phone during my prayer time because it's for me anyway, it's distracting. I love the Bible app, you can have the entire Bible right there in your pocket, as many translations as you want to use anytime, uh, the one I use is Version. it has uh, devotionals on it and all kinds of things, but I find that when I'm using my Bible app, then I'll say, well, let me just check Twitter, or, oh, let me post this verse on Twitter, which I do regularly, and then if I'm not careful, I'll get distracted, and then... The social media can disrupt my quiet time. So I've decided to put the phone away during my quiet time and just rely on paper. And it seems to do a little better. But my when my mind gets distracted, I refocus to God to seek to give God all of my attention. I saw a picture of a neat sign in Thailand that helps us to focus our attention on God. It says, start the day with love, spend the day with love, fill the day with love, end the day with love. This is the way to God. Maybe that'll be a help to you as it has been to me. The third way that we love God, the way that loving God looks is to give God all of my abilities. Now, we don't find this here, the strength in Matthew's gospel, we look at Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, and we find, the with all my strength added, the truth is, is that God create, created us to serve. He created us to use our abilities for his glory. The choir sitting behind me, Jeff, our accompanist, Dennis, our organist, they are one example of people who have sp- uh, special gifts and abilities, and they're using them for worship, to lead us in worship. I encourage you to find the way that you're uniquely shaped, that you might minister in the name of Jesus, that you might serve with all your strength. Maybe you are able to write grants and you could help a nonprofit in our community do something in that way or one of the agencies in our Baptist family to seek grant money. Uh, maybe you are gifted in communication and can help people who have uh, a fear of public speaking be able to talk in front of their class or in another environment or in the workplace. Maybe you know how to fix stuff and you could get with our deacons and serve. We're changing the the toolkit team to, I believe, a hands and feet kind of uh, team. Uh, I remember back when Melanie and I were first married, I'm really bad with plumbing. And the trap under the sink, you know that curvy thing, right? Well, it was clogged. So I figured out how to get underneath the sink in the laboratory. This is, we lived in a little small townhouse, and this is the upstairs uh, bathroom. It was small. So I got up under there and I took the trap off, and guess what I did? I put it under the sink to clean it out. And the water started running all over my feet. And I'm like, what's this? We have a leak. And lo and behold, I found that the trap thing, well, that was important. And you shouldn't clean that in the very sink that you just took it off of. So I'm not, Melanie would tell you, she's in ETC today, I believe, and she will tell you that I'm not really good with electricity or plumbing. In our first house in South Carolina, now I'm telling stories on myself, I wired the ceiling fans on the front porch backwards, and it wasn't working properly. And uh, fortunately, one of my neighbors was able to help me with that. I could have really caused a lot of problems by wiring the, the ceiling fan backwards. So some of you are really good in that area, and you, you would be happy to help some of the widows and widowers in our church who might need a hand with things in around the house, Right? And uh, in our praise and worship service at 9 o'clock, uh, you know, we, we have a need for some musicians like uh, additional guitar players and some vocalists. And Philip is talking to you about those things. These are just a few ways that you can engage in service. Uh, if you feel called to work with our kids, see Amanda. Uh, with our youth, see Kate. Anywhere in our worship, see Philip. And anywhere in our missions and discipleship, see Matthew, our staff members, and we will be glad to help you to get plugged in to service so that you are able to serve God with your abilities. God doesn't have our attention unless we give it to him. God doesn't have our affection unless we give it to him. And God doesn't have our abilities unless we give it to him. Now, I've said all of this, So the question you're now asking is, what does loving my neighbor look like? Pastor Bob, what does loving my neighbor look like? And I would say, see above. See commandment number one. Because loving neighbor looks like worshiping God with all that I have and with all that is within me. It is, I believe, impossible to Love God and not love neighbor. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 from the message, If anyone boasts, I love God, and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. Sometimes I think, well, my family's my neighbors, and I like most of them, so I'm good with that. I can love my family. Some of Sometimes, like, I've, I can love my friends. I've known them for a long time. I'm good with that. I can love my neighbors and the cul-de-sac around me. The people who I hang with, and on Halloween, we're going to have a fire pit out in front of the house and give out candy and enjoy fellowship. I can love them. It's good. Neighbor goes deeper than that, though. Neighbor is more than family. Neighbor is more than friends, people who like us, talk like us, dress like us, drive stuff like us, live where we do. It's more than the person next door. Neighbor as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, is described as, once there was a man walking down the Jericho Road and he was beaten up by life and left there to die. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story. This neighbor who was beaten and left for dead was avoided by the religious people and then the arch enemies of the Jews, a Samaritan, came and offered help. Which one was a good neighbor? The Samaritan. Who is our neighbor? Those who are beaten up by life. In the Gospel of Luke, it's the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame, the lepers. And who gets beaten up and smashed up in their world? And who gets beaten up and smashed up in our world today? It's the poor. It's drug-infested families, starving people, hungry people, those who are in jail, prisons, the sick, the homeless. Who is my neighbor is not only my family and my friends and the people next door, but they are also the people who are beaten up in this life. And my neighbor, I am to love just as I am to love myself. It's all wrapped up in imago dei that we are created in the image of a loving God. I want to stick with love. A couple days ago, one of my friends on Facebook posted a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King that reads, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And I researched that quote and found it from his 1967 sermon, Where Do We Go From Here? And the King staff member offered some reflections on the quote, which I think is important for us to hear, so I'd like to share them. Hate built up over time can and will become toxic. Toxicity over time can and will erode the vessel that it is in, and over time, that vessel will disintegrate and itself become one with the toxicity. Interestingly enough, says the writer, we can rid ourselves of the toxicity of hate, but only if we are willing to do so. How do we do that? By sticking to love. The writer says the Bible says in Matthew five forty four that we should love our enemies. We should bless those who curse us. Do good to those who hate us. Pray for those who spitefully use us and persecute us. We must learn to forgive. To love is to forgive, and love is the most gift and precious gift given to us. Dr. King has also said we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. And King says, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. So we are invited to do a little soul searching today. If you find any sense of hate lingering in the corners of your mind or the crevices of your heart, we know that it can disguise itself quite well, shine the light of love on it and watch it disappear. After all, darkness cannot exist in the presence of the light. Hate can only exist in the darkness where there is a sense of separation from God. Who is the light? And although you and I cannot make anyone love us, they cannot make us hate them. Let me say that again. Although you and I cannot make anyone love us, they cannot make us hate them. It is a conscious decision, and we have the knowledge, the freedom, and the willpower to make the better choice. I have decided to stick with love. How about you? Because Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Let's pray.